This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. I'm Jim Purcell, and welcome to the Returns on Wellbeing podcast. No well-being program, however good, will work in a resistant workplace culture. Yet many businesses do exactly that. They implement wellness programs while ignoring resistant workplace cultures. The result? Program failure. In fact, the vast majority of today's workplace wellness programs fail for that very reason. With us today are John Robeson and Rosie Ward, the co-founders of Salvio Health. They will discuss how organizations can greatly increase their chances for success when they focus on creating thriving workplace cultures. John Robeson holds a doctorate in health education and exercise physiology. Uh, Rosie Ward holds a doctorate in organization and management. John and Rosie are co-authors of How to Build a Thriving Culture at Work. I've read their book, and I found it to be full of valuable information for organizations that wish to transform into cultures of employee well-being. Welcome, Drs. Ward and Robeson. Thanks for having us. Hey, Jim. My pleasure. Culture is really an amorphous term that can mean many things to many people, and yet it's central to improving employee well-being. Tell us what your definition of culture is and why it's so important. Most people have started to use culture as kind of a nice buzzword, and they'll say culture of health, culture of well-being, culture of safety. And when you get down to it, they really start talking about organizational support or environment and climate. So Mm -hmm. they start talking about things like, what does your physical space look like? So there's a lot of looking at the built environment and healthy building standards. And they start looking at everything from, do you have places for people to relax and have mindfulness, to foosball tables, to nap rooms, and all of those things that are in the environment. And that's not culture at all. And so we're big believers of going back to the science and going back to the gurus rather than reinventing the wheel. And so the main expert in the field of organizational culture is Dr. Edgar Schein. And so if we go to his work and his definition of organizational culture, he defines it as the underlying hidden, taken for granted beliefs, values, attitudes, and perceptions that ultimately manifest themselves in our behaviors and how we do things. And so he talks about that it goes far beyond the way we do things around here. That's really a manifestation of culture. So it's culture is that underlying hidden attitude. And the analogy that we use a lot that seems to resonate for people is thinking about a river. So on the river, everything you can see from the shape of the riverbed to how rough or water is, is all a manifestation of what's happening beneath the surface, which is a powerful current. So you can't see the current, but if you step in the river, you feel it. And so we really look at that underlying current is a good analogy or metaphor for culture where everything else you can see, touch, and feel that's a manifestation that is is climate and environment. And I think what we're doing in the name of culture is actually environmental or climate work. It's not addressing culture whatsoever. Uh, One of the issues with the workplace is the ability to communicate with employees. That's a very basic, fundamental foundation for culture, isn't it? Um, Well, yes and no. I think that 
communication is certainly part of it. But when we talk about how we communicate with employees, it's first of all, how do we treat them and how do we listen to them right before? How do we like communicate with them? Sure. So do we do we actually convey to them that they matter and are valued as a human being versus a predictable, controllable machine or lab rat or small child? And so I think that um, communication is a piece of it, but it really goes back to first and foremost, do people have an underlying mindset and belief that they're seeing people as human beings? And I think that's where we get off course as well. Mm -hmm. and, okay. You know, if you go into some companies, um, you can get a, like you're like you go into the river right you feel the current everything you see on the surface is the climate but you go in and you feel the current why is culture so important because it's the foundation of everything in the organization i mean at, at, to john's point if if people don't fundamentally feel that they are valued that they matter then how are they likely are they going to be to go along with any kind of improvement efforts or growth efforts or transformation mm -hmm. efforts? Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at all the research, culture, because it's this collective mindset and we know that our behaviors are a manifestation of our mindset or how we think, that culture powerfully shapes the direction and the strength of the organization. And so if we're not fundamentally doing work that is going to influence and impact culture where there's a collective mindset that we recognize that people are not machines, we're not going to get very far. Well, Gallup tells us that the average participation rate in wellness programs in the United States is south of 30%. Is that a manifestation of a workplace culture problem? Um, I think that's a manifestation of a design problem. <laughs> a lot of these programs, well-intended, but are mm -hmm. flying against literally our biological DNA of what it means to be human, which is to be self-offering, self-determination is at the root of our being. So you look at autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Well, most of these programs take away our autonomy. They don't really have anything for mastery or something I care about, and there's certainly no purpose behind it, and it's attached to numbers, and it's attached to this faulty idea that it's going to help with healthcare costs. And so I think that and you start to look. I mean, there's blogs left and right. There's been NPR blogs and other people that just pop up talking about how much they hate these programs. You look at the latest fiasco at, you know, um, universities. It's They're rebelling because people are saying, I don't want to be treated like a uh, – a machine, basically. You're, and so you're, I think, you're, you're talking about Yale University, for example? Yep, yep. yep. And, and when we look at the poor participation, I wouldn't say it's reflective of culture. I say it's reflective of fundamentally lack of understanding of what it means to actually be healthy and well, and that we're putting too much emphasis that somehow participation in these programs means anything in terms of well-being of an individual or an organization, which they yeah. just don't. So I, I think that it's more of the 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 approach and the paradigm problem and a culture problem. In your words, what's what's the current state of workplace cultures in the U.S. today? Uh, pretty sad. <laughs> I mean, if mm -hmm. you actually, as example, and most people are probably familiar at this point, but Jeffrey Pfeffer has been doing research on this for many, many years, and his book Dying for a Paycheck just really brought to light how sad these dehumanized workplaces are and that they're now account for an additional 120,000 excess deaths, making the making workplaces the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and 8% of our healthcare spend. And you look at, in Japan, they've actually created language, um, Kiroshi is the word for death right. from overwork, and France had to pass the right to disconnect law. So I think what's happening is you're seeing this global kind of epidemic of uh, kind of dehumanized workplaces as technology and things come in, we're forgetting how to connect with people, we're forgetting how to treat people as 
human beings and culture is eroding at the same time there's this revolution or this movement happening where the tolerance for these dehumanized and eroding workplace cultures is saying enough already and so you're starting to see great strides with like b corps and conscious capitalism and firms of endearment and organizations that are saying we can go about business in a fundamentally different way and prove that we can be successful and so there there's this there's this very interesting dichotomy going on right now i feel like it's it, it we're at like kind of this tipping point where um, i think we have an opportunity to really shift the trajectory towards this rehumanized yep. revolution that's happening versus the dehumanized trajectory that we've been on yeah, let me just add that, uh, I mean, you know, if you just look at, for instance, engagement, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, engagement levels at around 30%, which they've been for decades, and, and that doesn't even really include, because we know there, there are real problems with the whole engagement measure, sure. right? People sure. can be very engaged and very burned out. But we, we've only got 30% engaged, and if you look at the percentage of people that are actually fulfilled, which is really, mm -hmm. you know, engagement plus plus what what human beings really need right uh you know it, it's even lower than that so it, it's yeah. really uh it, it, i agree totally with rosie that it's really uh it's really this dichotomy of all of this old stuff and now you have this new stuff sort of bumping into each other in a, in a paradigmatic way and uh when that happens it, it, there's always there's always a lot of chaos before things yep. um reorganize you know? now uh one of your your points in your book is that if you do these things, these good, righteous things, there is a there is an economic benefit to this. Mm. Uh, why don't you talk to that a little bit? I think probably the best body of research that we have now is looking at conscious businesses that fall under the category of what's called firms of endearment. So uh, firms of endearment is looking at these businesses that really operate with the conscious capitalism model of conscious leadership, conscious culture, uh, purpose over profit and and stakeholder value. And so they they've looked at non or they've looked at publicly traded and not publicly traded et cetera companies and they've been tracking them over the course now of 15 years. And if you go back at the 10 year mark these companies, if you just compare the publicly traded ones to the S&P 500, uh, five years ago or, or a while ago, they outperformed the S&P 500 at a ratio of eight to one. Now at the 15 year mark, they're outperforming at a 14 to one ratio. So as time goes on, the gap becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and right. they operate completely counter to quote unquote business as usual. And so, you know, they pay more, they invest more. Yes, they invest in well being, but guess what? There's no incentives or penalties or expectations that people have to. They're, they, they're very conscious about their culture and their leadership, and they fiercely nurture and protect it. And so I think yep. if we want to look at just a financial performance, these are some of the best organizations that we can follow and watch because they are blowing their competition. How do we get boards of directors and CEOs to take notice of this? That clearly is one of the missing links here. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think here's the thing is obviously finances tend to get people's attention, but then the human condition creeps in and people think, oh my gosh, but this is too hard. Or you know, we do tend to fall back on what's easy. What's quick, and I'm, I'm saying that with air quotes, quick and easy, because it feels too hard to go about it differently. And so I think that it's just continuing to paint a picture that if we keep doing what we've always done, 
you're not going to get to where you want to go. And in an age of consolidation with businesses and mergers and acquisitions to survive and trying to stay relevant. And as you start to look at, you know, what everyone calls the war on talent and the workforce shortage and really needing to um, compete for top talent, business leaders and boards of directors can't, unless they just are sitting back hoping they're going to get some kind of payout, they, they can't keep sitting back anymore and doing what they've always done. That's not going to yield where they want to go. But I think it's unsettling and uncomfortable to know, well, this is what's familiar to me. This is what's helped us be successful to this point. What value do I add if I suddenly let go of that and do something else? And it puts them in this state of great discomfort. And so I think that's what we have to help people reconcile right. is that uncomfortable space and why it's necessary to embrace that discomfort and look at our own narrative and look at our own paradigms to be able to ultimately move forward into to a, a new reality because our workplace and our world is not the same as it was two, three, four years ago, and it's only going to get more complex and more disruptive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Your book, uh, you talk about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, and you cite Paul Marciano's book, Carrots and Sticks Don't Work. And you say mm -hmm. successful organizations don't motivate employees, they engage them. Talk to me about that. What do you mean? Yeah, so going back to as part of our DNA of being human beings is we want to think for ourselves. I mean, try to try to get a two or three year old to do something and they're going to, you know, dig their heels in and, and not want to do it or a teenager or anyone for that matter. As soon as we're told what to do, we have an innate biological process that happens in our brain that signals a threat and we our instinct is to push back and rebel. And so the more that we use carrots and sticks to try to get somebody, that bribery sends a signal in our brain, first of all, that something must be wrong or this must suck or you wouldn't be trying to bribe me to do it. But the second thing is it signals that something's wrong because you were suddenly are taking away my autonomy, which is part of our, you know, our need for self-determination. And so instead we want to we want to engage people by creating the conditions where they feel valued as a human being, where they're feeling heard, where they're nurtured, where they have fulfilling work and where they feel like they get to contribute. So Edward DC always says that the wrong question for us to be asking is how do we get, or how do we motivate somebody to fill in the blank? Because that assumes that we can motivate someone else. We can control them and manipulate them, but motivation really ultimately comes from within. And so really our role is not to try to control people. But it's trying to, you know, create the conditions and tap into their natural resourcefulness that increase the likelihood that they're going to move forward. And it's trying to honor them where they are as a human being, not try to put them in a box of where we think they should be because some health risk assessment or some, you know, report or some research report said that they should, you know, have a health risk of this or whatever it might be. So it's really an honoring, honoring the innate humanity of people. I mean, we have four decades of consistent and conclusive research that that using carrots and sticks does not result in sustainable change, especially mm -hmm. for more difficult kind of wicked problems. You know, and not only that, but we also know that it, it comes with um, lots of iatrogenic consequences, one of which is that it decreases intrinsic motivation and creativity and causes people to uh, take shortcuts um, cheat, lie, and so forth. So, I mean, the research based on this, I don't know that there's anything else in the health field except maybe on the weight issue that's more powerful than the research on this, and yet we keep doing it over and over and over again, treating human beings like either machines or like rodents, right? Because yep. 
you know, cheese at the end of the maze. And it's just so unfortunate because the research is so, so clear about this. Uh, John, you mentioned weight. Um, and, and, and looking at uh, what an appropriate healthy weight would be and how you determine it. And I know you've written that an appropriate healthy weight cannot be determined by numbers on a scale, charts, BMI, or body fat percentages. Uh, what do you mean by that? The issue is that people can be healthy at a wide variety of weights. Um, and you cannot determine whether somebody is healthy. I, I'm putting quotation marks around that because I'm not even sure what, what that means. You can't determine whether somebody is healthy by looking at them. Yeah. And it just causes people so many problems. So what we, you know, the thing I've been involved with is called Health at Every Size. I've been one of the leaders in it for decades now. And so, you know, what, what Health at Every Size basically says is rather than focus on your weight, focus on your health. Yep. And as I tell people, if we do that, um, there are three possibilities. One is you'll lose weight. The other is you'll gain weight. The other is you'll stay the same. Mm-hmm. And that's I can I can do I can recommend that with a hundred percent assurity. But the folk if the focus is on health rather than on weight, that's where the focus needs to be. Okay, um, in your book, you talk about the clash of beliefs versus evidence in a paradigm paralysis that hampers efforts to improve employee well-being. What do you mean by this, and how has it manifested itself in most companies that you see out there today? here's the deal is that paradigms we all have them and they're this lens that shape how we view the world and the, and how we make meaning out of things and how we understand things and if we look again going back to our biological hardwiring of being human is that we our brains are pre-programmed to maximize reward and and minimize threat and so mm-hmm we fall into what's comfortable. And so if we have a paradigm or a belief about how things work or could or should be, and something is clashing with that or giving us evidence or suggesting to the contrary, it 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 brings about cognitive dissonance. It brings about discomfort. And so we really have two ways to reconcile that dissonance. We either take in that information and adopt and shift our paradigm or we dig our heels in and, and we, you know, like have a temper tantrum. And so if you go back to, you know, we talk about Galileo and back in the day of he, him not being the first person to suggest that the earth wasn't the center of the universe, but he was the first person to provide indisputable evidence. He invented the telescope, yet it was so threatening to people at the time that they wouldn't even look through it. And he had to live out his days in house arrest. And now we're like, well, of course the earth isn't the center of the universe. And I joke about like, you know, being now I have a son and I have to teach him that Pluto is no longer a planet where when I was growing up Pluto was a planet you know <laughs> so but we adopt and we get more information and I think what happened is the worksite wellness world grew up it's interesting because it's had this morph I mean we've all been in this long enough that it started out once upon a time as this nice idea it was it, it was just was the right thing to do to take care of people and it was a very holistic way and somewhere along the line turned into needing to prove some kind of return on investment and turned into a very narrow biomechanical it helps with health risk because it was the only way to get uh, employers to buy into that they should care mm-hmm. about their people 
And so what happened is then people got really stuck on this paradigm of it kind of has to work. And to John's point, you have all kinds of faulty research design and things that, that are showing up. And I think you have well-intended people that have kind of been bought into this belief. And we have degrees that have now popped up around it that didn't exist when we were back in school that are teaching people that, you know, if you help people reduce these biomedical risk factors and you attach, you know, behavioral economics and healthcare premiums and stuff, that somehow it's going to save an organization money. And and this paradigm just isn't supported by the research yet. It's familiar. It's where most people got their jobs. It's where most, like, they're like, well, if I let go of that, I won't have a job, particularly if I work for a vendor or a health insurance broker, because that's where jobs, jobs boomed over the last decade. And so it's really mm -hmm. unsettling to say, well, if this doesn't work, then what did I just spend money on degrees for? What have I been doing with my life? And so, yep. so the clash of belief versus evidence is really this, that, that our pair, we have all this evidence that keeps coming in saying that our belief that kind of started this field or got us down this trajectory is turning out to not be true. And, you know, what you see are some people that are embracing that and going, yeah, good, let's do things better and differently. And let's evolve our industry, just like every other industry evolves. And you have some people who it's so threatening, that they're just doubling down. Yep. And it's so that's what we mean by this clash. And it's kind of like, if we want to be taken seriously and you want to have the impact at some point, you've got to recognize that, you know, the earth isn't flat, Pluto's not a planet, et cetera. Like, accept it. Like I, I advocated for these programs. I ran these programs and cause it's what I knew at the time. And then, yep. so it's just taking the, the natural evolution of, of what's coming at us and evolving ourselves and really recognizing that we're here ultimately for the end user. And if what we're doing to the end user is causing shame and um, disconnection and all kinds of unintended consequences, then we, we really need to rethink what we're doing and why we're doing it. The really sad thing is, too, Jim, that, you know, this this uh, where this break happened that Rosie was referring to, you know, of course, was was, you know, 2010 and the Safeway Amendment yep. where, you know, the, the claims were made that that were not they were not they were inaccurate. They were not valid. And unfortunately, everything we've done for the last almost 10 years has been based on that invalid uh invalid research, invalid claims. And, and, and that's been really difficult because once you get, you know, as Rosie was saying, once you get into a paradigm, 10 years is a long time. It's very it difficult to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not right. What we say is that uh, employee well-being is extremely important. We've both, Rosie and I have both been accused of not caring about employee well-being, which of course is ridiculous. <laughs> what we're saying is that employee well-being starts at the bottom of the pyramid with a humanistic culture and quality leadership and mm. psychological safety and a supportive climate and effective communication. And once you get to the top of the pyramid, which is the well-being programs and resources, that's icing on the cake. Yep. Your book, and your consulting are built around your seven points of transformation blueprint for creating thriving workplace cultures. Tell us about your overall model and how it can help employers foster the kind of culture that supports well-being. Again, people tend to grasp and understand metaphors and analogies. So we use the analogy that building a thriving workplace culture is very similar to building a structurally sound and an aesthetically pleasing house in that if you skip important steps if you use outdated materials mm -hmm. that house is not going to withstand the test of time and in many cases maybe about as effective as building it on quicksand 
At the same time, it takes another level of attention and intention to turn that house into a home where people can grow and feel nurtured and have love and connection. And so that's really the metaphor we use. And so the seven points of transformation really follows that. So you start with transformation point number one is survey the land. And we really talk about looking at it from a holistic humanistic perspective and how often we are siloed with data and siloed with our interventions and we're not bringing the right partners to the table and not even we don't even know what we're working with right is it really a well-being issue or is it a, a culture and leadership issue those types of things and so and we follow from there and it's really well, like John mentioned on our website, uh, if you go to salvayopartners.com slash pyramid, since the book, we created a pyramid visual that really has also been helpful for people to go, oh, I get you've got to have a foundation of a house. Well, that's the base of the pyramid. And a lot of times, you know, individual well-being actually starts at the, at the base. It starts with organizational well-being factors like culture and leadership and stuff that most well-being people think, well, that's not my problem or that's not my training. But what we try to really help them see is, but it is. And here's how you can make an impact. And here's also, it's not a solo journey, by the way. So here's the partners you need to create. And here's the people you should be talking to. And here's how to embed yourself in leadership and people development efforts to get off of being, quote unquote, just a wellness person doing programs and actually fundamentally starting to make a difference to move the culture forward to a more yep. thriving future. Okay. Um, you make the distinction in your book between a smart organization and a healthy organization. And uh, mm -hmm. you, you describe a smart one is one that excels in the basic fundamentals of business, like strategy, operations, finance, marketing, and technology. A healthy organization, on the other hand, is one in which there are minimal politics, minimal confusion, high morale, high productivity, and low turnover. And, and the key is that you say while being a smart organization is half the equation for most organizations, it occupies almost all of the leader's time, energy, and attention. Yep. Uh, is that what you found out there? Yeah, I mean, and that, that actually comes from the work of Patrick Lencioni, and yes, we found it. And in fact, what's interesting is just a few months ago, Harvard Business Review, their, their entire issue was on the future of leadership development, and they mm -hmm. actually echoed that and said that most executive leadership development programs and executive MBAs and all of the, the development we put in are really more about those smart aspects of business. And that's not what's going to get us where we want to go, that we need actually the healthy aspects. We need people to have better uh, self-awareness and interpersonal skills and the soft skills that we typically don't think of. And that really falls into that healthy category. And organizations that invest in building up the health aspects actually get smarter over time mm -hmm. as well as healthier where organizations that continue to just focus on those smart aspects not only don't get smarter over time they get less healthy over time okay uh can either of you talk about a company who's gone through this process and how it contributed to a better culture and better employee well-being one of them that comes to mind is actually a small IT firm called Improving. Um, actually, well, Improving is one of them, but Envision, um, Envision IT, and they are based out of Madison, Wisconsin, and they have uh, they service all over the country. But they just they took they basically built their company around the firms of endearment model and said, you know what, in the world of technology where the go-to smart business strategy is to basically set yourself up for sale right into like how quickly can you enter the market, how much money can you make and how quickly can you exit and what it does for eroding people's well-being and working them to death and morale and all of those types of things, what will enable us to 
not exit this market ever, like to be fundamentally different and disruptive in a good way in the technology space. Mm -hmm. And they're growing, they're winning awards. Um, They're just an amazing, amazing company. And yeah, we tell their story in in our new book, which I'm super, super excited about. But they're they're one that comes to mind that I think people can learn a lot from um, just of of taking a stand and saying, you know what, we're going to do it differently and we're going to be successful as a result. And you don't have to be huge like Google or Patagonia. You can be a smaller organization and and, and, and make a positive impact. Yep. You talked about a new book. Tell us about it. It's called Rehumanizing the Workplace, Restoring Hope, Well-Being, and Performance While Future-Proofing Your Workplace. So it's kind of a mouthful. But basically, we're taking what we've learned over the last you know, several years since our first book and taking it to another level and really saying that thriving workplaces are one thing, but that, you know what, we've had really profound learning that culture doesn't have to start at the top and that culture is really an everyone thing and and culture at its core, much like psychological safety, resides at the local or team level. And so what we're really trying to do with this book is help whoever's reading it realize that, you know what, I have the opportunity to show up as a leader. I have the opportunity to influence and lead positive change. And we're walking people through, here's lessons learned. Here's companies who've done it. Here's what we've done. And really trying to take away some of those barriers that it has to start at the board or it has to start at the C-suite level. It actually doesn't. And so it's been a really profound learning for us over the last few years. And we just realized, you know what, if we want to further our purpose of rehumanizing the workplace, we can't keep this just to ourselves and our paradigm pioneer community of, of the 200 plus people that we've trained. We need to really grow this and say, you know what, here's quote unquote the secret sauce because we we are at a tipping point and we need more courageous people to step mm-hmm. up and say enough. And so that's really the, the impetus behind this book is to equip anyone to show up as a leader in their workplaces and in their communities and start to leverage these rehumanizing principles to make a positive impact around them and bring more humanity to the forefront. Yep. As Rosie was saying, you know, we, we train, we have a training that we do a couple times a year, a very intensive one. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have some amazing people that come through that, mostly people who have been in the field for many years and are frustrated. And we're all, we have this community now and, and, and what we're seeing, it's just a very exciting time to be in this field because, you know, we have this clash of the things we've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, and now these these new understandings that are coming out with the latest research and so on and the firms of endearment and self-managed companies and all of those kinds of things, DDOs, um, lots of companies are doing things differently and it's really, really, really um, exciting to be in that. And for me, especially because I, I also am very, very interested in, in social determinants of health, in, mm-hmm. in the health and wealth gap, the wealth gap in this country and politics as well. And I think um, with a with a political system that is, oh, how shall we put it, impotent at best, um, that some of the solutions, and I know that conscious capitalism, they feel this way too, they talk about it a lot, that some of the solutions to our our worst problems may in fact come from business rather than from government. And so just very excited about being involved with conscious capitalism. And uh, Rosie didn't mention it, but uh, Raj Sasodi is writing the foreword for our book, the founder of conscious capitalism. So we're just really, uh, really lucky and glad to be in the right place at the right time as a, you know, founding authors with conscious capitalism. Outstanding. Well, Rosie and John, thank you very much for joining us in the podcast. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to you, and I hope others will too. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. 
To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.